people are going to be writing about us for the rest of our lives for me, and after we're dead. So I intend to either confuse the issue so much they never knew what was going on, or to try and keep shoving out bits and bits. So as whoever is bothered to be looking at it in the future, the people that really know will sort out, you know, they'll know what was going on a bit. There's a lot of books about the Beatles, a lot of theories, and I try not to read them, and whenever I do, the first thing is like, oh, that's wrong. Everywhere you go, trying to find out any little bit of dirt that they can write about you. Beatles is Beatles, I Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what people say. You can't live all your life by what they want. Another Kind of Mind, a different kind of Beatles podcast by Another Kind of Mind. At the time of this recording, it's hashtag Ramiversary Week. The online Beatles and McCartney fandoms are alight with celebrations of the 50th anniversary of Ram's initial release on May 17, 1971. Some works of art are so timeless that they're not exactly well received during their initial release, only to become extremely well loved after being given time to age. And once this aging process has taken place, only then do people realize the work is actually quite ageless. 1971's Ram, the only album which was credited to both Paul and Linda McCartney, is in my opinion a perfect example of this phenomenon. And from what I've been seeing in the Beatles sphere this week, many others share this opinion. So why has it taken so long for Ram to receive its due outside of diehard McCartney fandom? What we know now is that contemporaneous music critics were primarily from the generation who came of age and grew into young adulthood when the Beatles were it. The baggage of the Beatles' breakup, the unfortunate positioning of Paul as the one at fault for it after the McCartney press release, and Paul and Linda's relative public silence in the aftermath simply did not endear Paul to the rock critic community. As documented in Joe Hagen's Sticky Fingers, a biography of Jan Wenner, founder and longtime editor of Rolling Stone magazine, critic Langdon Winner's initially warm and positive review for the McCartney album was changed to a negative one at Wenner's behest, Wenner's justification being that McCartney broke up the Beatles. Partisanship and personal feelings about the artist, rather than a fair appraisal of their work, became a norm within music journalism at the time. Dr. Erin Torkelson Weber noted in her blog, both Robert Draper in the Uncensored History of Rolling Stone and Joe Hagen in Sticky Fingers note multiple instances of Wenner altering already independently written reviews of various artists, such as Paul Simon, Paul McCartney, U2, and John Lennon, among others. Less on the basis of musical merit and more seemingly on the basis of Wenner's personal feelings toward the artist at that particular time. So music journalism was heavily political at the time, and this cannot be overlooked. Political in the sense that alliances and friendships with journalists were likely to result in more favorable reviews. 
It's also interesting to note that the trend in popular music was to be political. Political in this sense meaning that popular music was carrying contemporaneous political messages, reflecting the issues of the times. As illustrated in the new docuseries, 1971, The Year That Music Changed Everything. But art is entirely subjective. Being politically topical is not the only way for music to have substance, either. Whether or not something has so-called artistic merit is up to the individual. The merit of art is not something quantifiable, and journalists, authors, and magazine editors simply cannot be the arbiters of good taste. Especially because that taste is so often shaped by the social and political atmosphere of the time, things which are relatively transient. What is left is the art itself, and to me, the true test of timelessness is when future generations pick up the art, look at it, and still regard it highly. The prevailing trend in popular music at the time was, of course, that music should have a political bent in order to be considered artistically valid, and not just commercial pop, which was regarded by critics to simply be for consumption by the masses and forgotten about in short order. But there are always people contemporaneously enjoying art who don't pay attention to critics, and they simply like what they like. Ram still enjoyed a high volume of sales and commercial success at the time of its release. But unfortunately, the people who did love and appreciate Ram contemporaneously didn't have the platform to shape long or short-term public opinion. And this uncharitable critical appraisal of McCartney's early solo work was laid down in print for posterity and presented as an objective fact, not only by the music critics who penned them, but several authors of Beatles biographies in the 70s, 80s, and even through the 90s and beyond. The Beatles' cultural status as legends, plus the public's grief worldwide when they split, and then again in 1980 when John was murdered, created a demand for biographies about the band and its principles. And this led to these early, original reviews being endlessly quoted and reprinted. The idea that McCartney's early solo work was fluff, or subpar compared to his Beatles output, lived on when certain authors codified it in the Beatles biographies. Several authors seem to fall into either favoring Lennon in the aftermath of the breakup and leaned into this favoritism even more out of grief after his murder, or they just favored the band being together and couldn't truly appreciate the Beatles' separate solo works because to them, it was never going to measure up to the Beatles as a band. This is not to say that Lennon is not worthy of being someone's favorite Beatle or that people aren't allowed to prefer the Beatles as a package deal rather than solo artists. Both opinions are allowed and completely valid. What's problematic here, however, is that there seemed to be an unwillingness in early Beatles authorship to temper these biases, sometimes unabashedly agreeing with these assessments within the text of their books, seemingly leveraging them as proof that McCartney's solo work was subpar. We take for granted today how many options we have for accessing art, music, and entertainment. One has to wonder if it would be as easy for a small fanboys club in the music press with a political agenda to harm an artist's reputation 
and potentially put people off listening to them today, as it was 50 years ago. Popular music journalism and criticism still exist, but those institutions don't seem to hold the same amount of power they once did in terms of being able to shape public opinion about an artist. For one thing, artists or their marketing staff can run their own public platforms. And secondly, information in general exists in a staggering amount compared to 50 years ago, travels at an alarmingly fast rate, and while accessibility to information is not always entirely equitable the world over, it's easier in general to find things that we like and to be our own tastemakers now than it was in the 1970s and 80s. We have online platforms like TikTok, YouTube, Twitter, and blogs with user-created media. Ideas, information, and entertainment can be distributed and propagated rapidly, while there was no such thing as going viral in 1971. This isn't to ignore or dismiss that there are politics or unfair gatekeeping in the modern music industry, because there absolutely still is. The difference I see is that discovering music has morphed into more of a listener-led endeavor than ever before. For as many people who were diehard McCartney fans back in the day, one can't help but just wonder how many more there would be now had these negative critical assessments not been used the way they were within the Beatles biographies. Or if, at least, their inclusion in the books were part of the author having a broader, more critical discussion of the climate of music journalism at the time, rather than being used as factual proof of the author's opinion of the supposed low quality of McCartney's post-Beatles output. It makes one wonder if more people would have listened with a curious and open mind and discovered that they did like him after all. I still find first-generation Beatles fans online saying that they only very recently gave McCartney's solo work a chance. So you may be wondering, who cares if the boomer rock press didn't give early Mac his due? If acclaim for Ram has grown exponentially over the years, you may be wondering, why does this even matter anymore? The reason I chose to discuss it in the context of the Ram album today is because I think it says a lot about Ram as a piece of work and McCartney as an artist. It illustrates to me that he wasn't following the dominant trend in popular music at the time. He was being inventive and was not aiming to make something that would be mainstream acceptable at that moment in time. One feature of timeless work is that not everyone gets it contemporaneously. Groundbreaking things are often met with skepticism upon their release. Eric Wangberg, also known as Eric the Norwegian, the mixing engineer on RAM, had this to say in an interview with Andy, the co-host of the All McCartney podcast. I understood right away what was happening. When it comes to critics, it takes a while for people to absorb. And the more you listen, the more you like it. And the more you discover, and the more your body and your ears register. He went on later in the interview to add, we don't want to make music for the times. We want to make music for the future. All during hashtag Ramiversary week, I couldn't help but notice that everyone who cherishes this album has a personal story behind why they came to fall in love with it. I'm no exception to this. My dad is an example of someone who never paid attention to music critics, 
He's a late baby boomer, so he was only 13 at the time of Ram's release. He had loved McCartney for its earthy, intimate grit and its back-to-basics nature. A budding musician himself, he marveled at Paul's ability to be a one-man band. And he loved Ram for its out-of-the-box innovation, its freshness, the variety of styles and sound, the artful production, the tasteful flow of the track listing, and most of all, its emotional honesty and beauty. He was just a kid in 1971, so he didn't pay attention to magazines like Rolling Stone. He was saving all his lawn mowing money for records and a new drum kit. He only became aware of the bad reviews when I read Beatles books as a teenager and told him about them. Now, I share all of my dad's opinions about Ram, yet he never made any special sort of effort to indoctrinate me into solo McCartney fandom. I fell in love with Ram as a young teenager in the 90s, shortly after I became a Beatles fan. This happened to be when indie rock and experimental music were both enjoying a surge in popularity. I think this was just one reason why Ram worked so well for me, because I knew it was a few decades old, but it just sounded so fresh, innovative, original, and experimental, just like the contemporary music that I enjoyed at the time. The musical DNA of McCartney's early solo creations were showing up all over the place in popular music again and again, and they continue to do so today. To meditate on McCartney's lasting impact actually gives me chills. And to me, Ram still sounds like a new style of music 50 years after its release. But that wasn't the only reason I fell in love with it. Ram is certainly an album meant to be listened to through a good pair of headphones. The production is stellar. It has a lush, but not too polished, sonic atmosphere throughout. And the vocal layering is so artfully done. I can almost physically feel the music surrounding me when I hear it through a pair of headphones. The music itself runs the gamut from ethereal, like long-haired lady and ram on, to terrifying in the best way, like Monkberry Moon Delight. There's so much diversity from track to track, stylistically and in terms of substance. The order of the tracks takes me on the most beautiful journey. The emotional moods on each track and the actual musical styles of each song fluctuate so much that I never get bored. And they also make sense because human emotions also fluctuate. I never feel like, huh, okay, here's the angry part of the album, and now here comes the lovey part, now the funny part, and now the sad part. Or something like, ah, here are all the rockers. Now we have all the dreamy songs now the experimental ones. No, they're ordered in such a natural way that it just keeps me interested and compelled throughout. And it's so intuitively assembled. And Ram contains so many feelings conveyed through both the artful and clever lyrics and the composition of the music itself. Too Many People deals with anger, thinking for yourself, emerging from a crisis with newfound personal power, and living your best life.
three legs toys with the notion that perfection isn't absolutely necessary in every facet of life. And there's a new kind of freedom to be found in relaxing a bit, and not needing every minute detail of life to be just so. Ram on is the healing of the soul after a major life transition. The self-reinvention, leaving the past where it belongs, embracing the present, and finding joy in the next chapter of life. Dear Boy expresses gratitude for a new lover, an amazing and one-of-a-kind person, while taunting their ex-partner for not truly appreciating her and taking her for granted when they were together. I read it as Paul pledging to Linda that he would never make the same mistake her ex-husband did. Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey, plays with the idea of generational fighting. We can be critical of and try to avoid repeating the mistakes the previous generation made, but we can also give them grace, use compassion in relating to them, and glean wisdom from their lived experiences. Smile Away finds humor in an emotionally difficult situation, and learning to just let it go. Keep moving along, keep doing you, and acknowledging that one may not know how to do that, and must dedicate themselves to learning how to do that. Heart of the Country is a celebration of the bucolic nature of living in the countryside, the peace and seclusion, the sense of homeostasis, which comes from living in constant, close contact with nature.
Monkberry Moon Delight deals with uncertainty, fear, tension, and anxiety about the future. And the consumption of the substance in question only worsening these feelings rather than numbing them. Eat at Home is the playful sexiness and passion of new love, and how passion and domesticity are not mutually exclusive. Long Hair Lady sorts through the soaring emotional euphoria and the inevitable doubts of new love, with the lovers ultimately arriving at the notion that while they're in the throes of the honeymoon, getting to know you period, they still feel at home with one another. They're each other's emotional safe harbor, and this is the real deal, the long haul, the lifelong love. The Ram On reprise is a fitting musical way to tie all of these themes together, culminating in the album's larger statement. Put your head down, keep moving through life's peaks and valleys, and let love be your safe harbor. And it always seems like it's going to be used as the closer. But as we all know, this album has to end with an absolute banger. And Ram delivers on that front with the next and final track. The backseat of my car is the reconciliation of the inner youth and its notions of what life is meant to be, what's right and wrong, with the more mature version of the self we all hopefully have the opportunity to grow into, and the tension between embracing this new maturity and shedding the more petulant nature of youth without losing touch with the positive aspects of rebellion, keeping ourselves internally young at heart, curious, interested, and wild.
Another thing I absolutely adore about this album is that I can really feel the love between Paul and Linda. It shines through the entire time. When Ram is being creative, their relationship is in this very magical, new relationship phase. Before I ever fell in love with another human being, I could feel the new relationship energy of Paul and Linda at the time, at least vicariously through this album. But even if I hadn't at the time, read enough biographies to know that Paul and Linda's marriage had weathered many storms and that they were still together going strong, in it for the long haul, I could feel from the music that they felt that way about each other. They knew it would last a lifetime. And I feel like they were laying all that love and devotion down, memorializing it with this music. This album means a lot to me personally, because it's provided a lot of bonding moments between my dad and I, and also the freshness of the discovery I made about this album as a young teenager. It's still with me as I approach middle age. Also, my affinity with this record has grown as I've experienced different phases in my own life. While the album was most certainly born of Paul's personal journey, and he and Linda's walk into their new life, facing new challenges and forging a new path together, I think it's got such a universality to it that anyone experiencing the peaks and valleys of life can learn from it and find comfort, hope, and redemption within. The longevity of this album's emotional significance to me is something very unique. While many of my favorite albums are tied to a specific period in my life and evoke a sense of nostalgia for that time when I listen to them, this has been one of the very few special albums in my favorites that has traveled with me down every single path. There's so much to love about this album from a purely musical standpoint. I adore that this album is truly Paul and Linda. Their team effort comes through beautifully throughout the entire album. They have this enchanting vocal blend together. Linda's voice is quite versatile, and she's able to adapt her approach instinctively to the mood in every song. There's also something very special and unique about a couple in love actually making music and harmonizing together. They were part of a very small club of lovers in the popular music world at the time who made music together. And they worked together so well according to everyone involved in the album's production. In the liner notes of the 2012 deluxe reissue of Ram, Paul had this to say about working with Linda. What I liked about Linda's singing was the tone of her voice. I'd never worked singing with a woman before, so I liked the idea of her range. I first found out she could sing and could sing well in the studio when we were finishing off my track Let It Be with the Beatles. She and I were living near the studios and I went in one night to put some harmonies on it. And there was one high harmony I wanted to do, but it was just about out of my range. I said, do you want to try it? And I told her the line, and she tried it. 
It worked really well, you know. If you listen to it now, the high harmony on the Beatles' Let It Be, that's Linda doing it. So I knew it could work. On something like Dear Boy, which was more complex, I could see that she could do it. So we just took the time. I put my part on, and then encouraged Linda to just take it easy, relax, put a good performance in, which she did. And years later, some of my really cool professional friends who knew what was good and what wasn't would listen to those harmonies and point them out and say, those are really great harmonies. I remember Elton John commenting on that, and I remember Michael Jackson commenting on that. The production and musicality of Ram are of an extremely high caliber. In a recent interview with Ben Lindbergh in The Ringer, Wings drummer Denny Sywell said this of the recording sessions. Ram was not that easy of a record to really pull off. A lot of the material on Ram was really complicated. To do a song like Uncle Albert in one day, in one pass, we did not do Uncle Albert and then stop the machine and start it for Admiral Halsey. That was one song and that's the way it was recorded. Oh my god, talk about complicated songs. And there wasn't a lot of editing, if any. That record was not done to a click track. It was pure. It was really an organic recording. Sywell seemed to understand that they were creating a piece of enduring art, saying, Every time he would play us the song we were going to do that day, I'd say, oh my god, this is not your ordinary New York session. People are going to be listening to this stuff 50 years from now. In terms of the sonic makeup of Ram, Eric Wangberg had this to say, my thing about RAM is that it should be listened to on a headset, because you get things through your head. The music is in you, inside of you. It creeps inside of you. The appreciation for McCartney's early solo works has only grown with time, as people who did not grow up with the popular music of the 60s began embarking on their own musical explorations. Notably, many musicians rate Ram as one of their favorite albums, said Harry Styles of the time in which he was recording 2019's Fine Line album, we do mushrooms, lie down on the grass, and listen to Paul McCartney's Ram in the sunshine we'd just turn the speakers into the yard. Fred Armisen, who was the drummer for the band Trenchmouth in the 80s, and has worked on Portlandia, SNL, and dozens of other film and television projects, says of Ram, it's a masterpiece. I think the songs are beautiful. It's recorded like an indie record. It sounds like it was recorded at somebody's house. I love the color of the artwork, and it's just the perfect album. He was inventing this new persona. I think it takes a lot of courage to say, I know I've been well rewarded for doing this one thing, but now I'm going to do this completely different thing. I just love that album. I'll never get enough of it. Both Ben Gibbard and Dave Depper of the band Death Cab for Cutie rate Ram as one of their favorite albums as well. Here's Ben Gibbard during a quarantine live stream in May of 2020. Oh, here's a good one. Favorite post-Beatles solo record? Um, I mean, 
I really like uh, I really like Ram Paul McCartney's Ram. Um, I mean, you know, I feel like the 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 right answer to that, depending on how, the the right answer is always usually um, uh, the first George Harrison record. Um, but uh, I don't know. I'm kind of I I I love Ram. Um, I also really love uh, Mind Games too. Uh, so those are those are two of, of my favorite. But Ram Ram is definitely my favorite. Dave Depper of Death Cab for Cutie released his own solo cover of the Ram album in 2011 called The Ram Project. He said upon the project's release, The Ram Project was meant to be a simple exercise in learning how to finish something I'd started, an effort to improve my skills at home recording, an attempt to better myself as a musician and singer, and finally a celebration of one of my favorite records. Pure McCartney is a live album by singer-songwriters Tim Christensen, Mike Viola, and Tracy Bonham, performing as a supergroup called The Damn Crystals, released in 2013. Tim Christensen had this to say about the project. We just thought of celebrating the guy because both Mike and myself are big fans, um, of course of the Beatles, but also uh, of all the solo work, the solo albums. And uh, so many bands, cover bands, have, have done a lot of Beatles tributes, and, and, and I don't know about anyone has ever done Ram. Ram? Yeah. As kind of a... I don't know if it's his most popular album. Uh, it's probably not. But to me, it's kind of a cult favorite amongst musicians. Yeah. Uh, it's a favorite. There are many other amazing covers of Ram songs from several artists. I'll include a list of them in the show notes, and many will be on the Spotify playlist we've created as a companion to this episode. I wanted to shine a light on one particular cover by the artist Novelty Island. It's a cover of Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey. It's available as a free download on their Bandcamp page and can be found on their YouTube channel as well. It's a really impressive and beautiful cover. The artist takes an interesting approach to the song with several musical Easter eggs folded within, which makes for a really fun listen. Please head over to their Bandcamp to download the song and buy some of their other music and show them some love. Links will be in the show notes. If the McCartney album represents Paul's relief from physically separating himself from the negativity of the Beatles breakup, getting up and dusting himself off, then Ram represents Paul with renewed strength, actually climbing and ascending a proverbial mountain. Ram to me represents Paul completely reinventing himself, truly coming into his own identity as an artist apart from his old band. And the woman he loved was not just supporting him, but actively doing that with him, which speaks to the power and strength of them both in the face of what had to be a pretty challenging and traumatizing life change. Sometimes art simply needs time to age for people to truly understand and appreciate its value. 
I'm heartened to see so much reappraisal of this amazing album during the last several years, and I'm grateful this important piece of pioneering art within the canon of modern popular music is finally receiving the love and celebration it deserves. To this listener, Ram still sounds like a completely new style of music, 50 years after its release. Since the early 2000s, many have leaned into the idea of Ram being the first indie pop album. I agree with this, because I think Ram embodies the ethos of indie pop, before indie pop was even a genre that existed. I know that Paul was not necessarily an indie musician in the sense of releasing music on an independent label, as he had come from the most popular band in the world, but I think he managed to create a blueprint, or maybe a template, of what would become the indie genre's ethos with this album. It sounds sophisticated and homemade at the same time. It's rich and full of gorgeous layers, but not overly polished. It manages to feel real and raw in all the right ways. It explores sensitive and emotional subjects without being twee or saccharine. It represents the freedom of the artist to play with sounds, be creative, playing with sounds and lyrics in a forward-thinking, gutsy, and experimental fashion. It doesn't exist to please the popular sensibilities of the time period it was created in. It wasn't created to be cool, but because of this, I think it ends up being even cooler. I think all of these attributes are what made the album resonate with musicians who would go on to create their own original work using that creative ethos as their template. And I still hear traces, subtle and obvious, in the musical DNA of this masterwork, living on in the music of many contemporary artists I listen to.
So here's a toast to Ram, which just happens to be my favorite album of all time. And an album that is technically 50 years old this week, but continues to sound just as fresh, groovy, fun, heartwarming, emotional, daring, beautiful, interesting, wild, intense, diverse, groundbreaking, and new to this very day. Now, if you want to learn more about Ram as an album and McCartney as a solo artist, I highly recommend watching an extremely well-researched and gorgeously crafted documentary series called Understanding McCartney by Breathless345 on YouTube. This series is a true gem and is full of illuminating information, as well as being incredibly fun to watch. Another thing I immensely enjoy about the creator's style is that they let the source material speak for itself and allow the viewer to come to their own conclusions about the topics being explored. I strongly recommend our listeners check out all their work on YouTube. I've left a link to the series in the show notes. I've also included a link to a Spotify playlist as a companion to this episode, as well as links to some amazing covers of songs on RAM by various talented artists. Please check them out. There are also links to some other fun videos about RAM, which I thought our listeners may enjoy and appreciate. Thank you once again to everyone for supporting our podcast. We're really grateful to everyone who's been listening, participating in our Facebook group discussions, sending us cool feedback and links. It's so lovely to hear from all of you. If you like what we're doing, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating or review, as that can really help other Beatles fans find us. Also, please feel free to send any show topic suggestions to us on our social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, our website, anotherkindofmind.com, as well as our email, acompodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much. Until next time, everyone. Bye.